This is probably the first paper I've ever published in my life where I'm hoping that we will be wrong, that the future will prove us wrong. We always want our science to be correct, and we hope that the models and everything, the projections are correct, but we hope that the future is not what we're predicting in this, which is the worst case scenario. We're hoping that indeed there can be adaptation and mitigation that will make things less dire than they appear to be in these maps. Humans, like any other organism, occupy a niche, a Goldilocks zone for which our biology is suited relative to the extreme diversity of habitats on Earth. But to understand the natural habitat of human beings, we would first have to perform a comprehensive survey of human settlements throughout history and prehistory, looking for patterns in the climate data. No one did this research until very recently, and what they found surprised them. Human life, especially the outdoor work like farming upon which our societies depend, is suited only to a very narrow band of temperature and moisture levels, a tiny area on Earth's large surface. The implications are severe and ominous when held in light of climate forecasts for the coming decades, a major and unprecedented set of challenges that will test our ability to innovate, adapt, and migrate as the world around us changes. This week's guests are SFI ecologist Martin Sheffer at Wageningen University and SFI archaeologist Tim Kohler at Washington State University. In this episode, we discuss the past and future human climate niche, how our ability to adapt to climate change is hampered by the psychology of sunk costs, and how a better understanding of social tipping points and collective information processing at the scale of civilization could help prevent catastrophes ensured by business as usual. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield. Each week, we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give and or consider rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Tim Kohler, Martin Sheffer, welcome to Complexity Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Happy to be here. I would like to discuss one particular paper, your paper on the future of the human climate niche that you co-authored with Chiju, Timothy Lenton, Jans Christian Schwenning. But there's a number of other uh, papers that either or both of you have worked on over the years that I think link to this one really well. So this will be, you know, kind of dipping into different areas of both of your research careers and we'll try and sort of constellate things and expand on some of the issues that you raise in this latest piece. Sounds great. Sure. Excellent. Well, I'd like to start first by asking the two of you how this particular paper came to be. My understanding is that it had at least some of its origin story in an SFI working group. Well, it's a, it, it's a long story. It, it started when I was 
at a conference of tropical ecology in Merida in Mexico. And it was awfully hot and humid. And I started wondering, is this, is this good for humans? And I started looking for literature, couldn't find any real good stuff. And then I forgot about it. And then later, uh, working with um, Shushi, I thought, let's go back to the work we did on tropical rainforest, where we were characterizing the climate niche of the, of the rainforest. And we did the same for boreal ecosystems. Let's try it for humans. And uh, I didn't think much of it. But uh, a very clear pattern came out. And it turned out that humans were concentrated very much in a particular temperature uh, zone. And then we started wondering whether it was a coincidence, perhaps, and thought, well, let's go back in time. But we didn't know how to go back in time. So that's when we called Tim Kohler. And since it had to do with climate and we didn't know anything about climate, we needed Tim Lenton. And since we didn't know anything actually about where humans live and for what reasons, we had to call on Jens Christian Svenning. So then we had a team and that was a really great team. And we worked actually for a few years on this. At some point, we thought it was a great idea to have a workshop about it at SFI. But by the time that uh, we finally made it to SFI, the work had basically be done. And we moved on to a, a next topic, which uh, will produce a paper soon and which was fantastic uh, also. Uh, the title of that paper so far is Survival of the Systems. So that, that's how it goes in science, right? You have ideas and then they, and finally you, you come together, but then you're already on to the next idea. So in the end, there will probably be on the order of uh, three, maybe four papers coming out of this working group. So we can be quite, uh, SFI, I think, can be quite pleased with the performance of this working group. By the time we got to Santa Fe, I think, I feel like our main job with respect to the paper we're discussing today was to see if we could poke some holes in it. Are there problems with this? Uh, what, what could possibly be wrong? We were, we were there primarily as critics, but also to see whether or not we could extend it meaningfully in other directions. We wanted to just basically push and pull on it and see where we went. And one of the things that came out of that was working with some new results from crowdsourced archaeological research called Archaeoglobe, which coincidentally was published uh, shortly after our working group. And so we could draw on their results to make estimates of how dense people had been in various portions of the world over chunks of time going back to the beginning of the Holocene, that's to say 10, 12,000 years ago. So we drew on those results as well as some results from more traditional land use patterns that had been attempted to extend back into prehistory called the Hyde database. And we saw somewhat similar results from both of those, much to my surprise. And they showed that, in fact, uh, our preference for this relatively narrow temperature band between roughly 11 degrees uh, centigrade and 15 degrees centigrade has been constant well back into at least the mid-Holocene, when a lot of the world's populations were still hunters and gatherers. So 6,000 years ago, agriculture was just spreading across Europe and just beginning to spread up uh, from Mexico. So by far the majority of the people in the world at that point were 
foragers, farmers, fishers, hunters, and gatherers, they could be highly mobile, they could move wherever they want, and yet they stayed within that climate ban, much to my surprise. Yeah, so let's talk about that climate ban as defined by this paper. The way that this particular piece has been reported, it succumbs to some of the kind of uh, perennial problems, I think, in science journalism that a lot of science journalism doesn't really get under the hood and, and look at how you came to the understanding that you came to. And so I'd love to hear how you went about defining this climate niche in the first place. So the way we looked at this was just looking at the population density distribution of humans, but not in space, but in climate space. So you can make one axis, which is, uh, for instance, mean annual temperature, another axis, which is mean annual precipitation. And you can think of more axes. And then you look in that space, what kind of combinations are available on the globe? How many places have those, those particular combinations? And then you look uh, where the people are. And then from that, you derive a preference. So that's, that's basically ecology, right? And we took the big step to say as ecologists, well, maybe humans are just another species and let's see if they have some preferences too. And, and we didn't think that would lead too much because we know people are living everywhere. They live on the pole and they live in the desert. But to our surprise, the distribution of people in, in the climate space it was not at all random, very clear preferences. And with Tim Kohler's expertise, we could look back in time. And, and it's really surprising to see that we still have the same apparent preferences that we had 6,000 years ago. So there must be something to that, we thought, because we could move everywhere. We, we can move everywhere. We have all kinds of innovations and still we have that same preference. So that's, that's what got us on, on the track. That, that was the, the basic method. Of course, it, there is a lot of work and a lot of details to it. Because if you go, go back in time, you want to reconstruct where humans were back in time. And that's not so easy. And also, you have to project that on how the climate was in those places where the people were back in time. So you really need this combination of expertise in paleoclimate, in, in archaeology. So that's what we could do with this group. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to note, you, you make a point in this paper that it's not that human beings are concentrating in the areas of greatest soil fertility. Yeah, well, of course, you, you, you start looking for other things that are obvious. Where are the best soils? Where is enough rain? Where is actually the primary productivity? Where uh, large? So where do, the, where, where do the plants grow best, which is the basis for, for uh, also agriculture? Well, none of those seem to, to be the definite answer. So it was actually quite surprising that temperature appeared so important. Of course, we were also limited in terms of rainfall. When, when there is no rain in the desert, there is no people. But uh, actually, the, the temperature was, was perhaps the most surprising and also one of the, most, of the clearest patterns. For me, one of the most interesting figures in the paper is the first figure, and that, that figure shows that uh, if you just look at the distribution of the available land surfaces in, in the world with respect to mean annual temperature and mean annual precipitation, it's spread out over a vast climate space. But then when you look at where people are now, 
or where people were uh, 6,000 years ago, we occupy a very narrow portion of that available niche. And when you look at our distribution, you also see that it's quite similar to the present distribution of crop production, the present distribution of livestock production, and the present distribution of uh, GDP. But it's very dissimilar to the distribution of soil fertility or net primary productivity. So our crops and our livestock are selected for a specific band within the available niche, within the available soil fertility and net primary productivity. And so it's worrisome to think about uh, the future and where our crop production and livestock production will go as uh, that climate niche begins to move on the surface of the earth. Yeah, that brings us to the meat of this paper, which is the, 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 the ominous forecast that the next 50 years of climate change are going to result in a, a pretty significant redistribution of this niche across the surface of the planet. What models did you use in order to investigate this? We just followed the standard climate models. We didn't compute the climate in the future, which is used to IPCC models. And we looked at different uh, scenarios of uh, various degrees of warming. And we found that for each degree of warming, um, you can roughly say that about a billion people get into serious problems. About a billion people would need to move if we would want to stay in the same climate niche that served us well for the past 6,000 years. So that's, that's the analysis of the niche. And since it, it, it became such big numbers, so for three degrees you get three billion people um, in serious trouble, we also wanted to look at a very different, very simple way. And uh, we just looked at the hottest places that we can find now on Earth, which uh, have a mean annual temperature of above 29 degrees centigrade, and we looked um, how large the geographical area would be where those temperatures would be felt in the future. And then, for instance, for a three degrees warming, you see that that covers an area also with, where about three billion people would leave, live. And that's, that's very hard to live at that temperature. So those temperatures on the globe today are mostly restricted to the central Sahara in Africa. But this paper shows that uh, under the business as usual, or also sometimes called the worst case scenario, uh, those temperatures are going to expand greatly in central Africa, but also extend over onto the Arabian Peninsula portions of South, uh, uh, Southern Asia, portions of Northern Australia, and a large portion of, of Amazonia in Northern South America. So those places are going to be very hard hit under the business as usual or worst case scenario, which we certainly hope we can avoid. Yeah, so looking at this, I guess it's figure four in this paper that shows the current suitability to the human niche and then the projected 2070 suitability and the difference between them. Uh, just at a glance, it doesn't look like we've lost 
much terrain in a temperature sense, right? But I understand, like, if anything, maybe by temperature, more of the Earth is actually suitable, but it's not just that one-dimensional analysis. And you do go into some detail in this about why this particular projection is likely to be so difficult, and it has to do with the distribution of the projected population growth and the difficulties of migration. And it's not as simple as just saying, well, hey, there's a bunch of new land up there for you in Canada and Siberia, and why don't you just move three and a half billion people up there? So <laughs> I'd love to hear you get into more of the multidimensional complexity of this this situation and how you know, it's not as simple as just saying, well, hey, there's gonna be a ton of new arable land. Well, yeah, the, the point you make is, is, is uh... It's very good, of course. Some places become worse and other places on the globe become better. So what's the problem? Well, we just have to move. Well, that's not so easy, right? <laughs> but people have always moved in the past, also in response to, to climatic uh, change. It's in a way strange that we uh, never want to talk about it. Uh, when we think about climate change, uh, we, we stress there's two things we should do. Uh, we should limit it. And we should adapt locally to the new climate. I think our paper suggests that there may be a third thing that we should do, and that is prepare ourselves for organized migration. Think about the best way for some redistribution. Looking at the data that we get, it's hard to imagine accommodating different degrees of climate change without at least relocating at the least hundreds of millions of people. And that's a kind of a, a taboo, a no-go area. I think with our results, it becomes clear that we should start thinking about the best way to do that. And migration can bring lots of good things. People don't like to go away. They don't go away unless it's really needed. But we also know of many good things that have come from migration, but it can also cause tremendous stress and, and conflict. So how we prepare ourselves for that, how we deal with that globally will make a lot of difference. Yeah, and I might point out that even within countries, we can see that there might be some uh, demand for relocation. If you look just at North America, you can see that the southern portions of the United States on that figure four look as though they are going to become extremely uncomfortable under the business as usual scenario in 50 years. Uh, whereas the northern portions extending on into southern Canada look like they're going to be increasingly attractive. So the stresses and strains of migration are probably easier to manage within nations and between nations they get much more difficult but we know that um, even within United States movement of people from uh, place to place has been stressful and politically unpalatable at times. We have the example of the Dust Bowl for example in which large portions of the of many people in the southern plains left for places like California where they were uh, exploited rather viciously by large fruit growers and other people. You can read Grapes of Wrath and find out the story on the ground. So 
I'd have to say that looking at uh, figure four, this is probably the first paper I've ever published in my life where I'm hoping that we will be wrong, that the future will prove us wrong. We always want our science to be correct and we hope that the models and everything, the projections are correct, but we hope that the future is not what we're predicting in this, which is the worst case scenario. We're hoping that indeed there can be adaptation and mitigation that will make things less dire than they appear to be in these maps. No doubt. But you introduce a fold into this paper, which is the unwillingness of people to move, that typically migration is avoided for as long as possible. And that's where I'd love to link in this other piece that the two of you uh, co-authored with Marco Janssen for Current Anthropology back in 2003, Sunk Cost Effects and Vulnerability to Collapse in Ancient Societies, because it feels like this piece sort of, sort of speaks directly to the psychological dynamics involved in what it's going to take to get people to leave their homes and their communities under even extraordinary strain. And so would you care to unpack the thinking behind this particular paper? Let me start on that because that uh, used uh, a portion of one of the areas I work in as a, a test scenario. The larger concept has to do with sunk costs, the idea that people weigh future actions taking into account their past investment which is a completely irrational, non-rational thing to do. In fact, people should take into account the future circumstances and their projections of the future, not how much they have invested in a particular landscape. But this sunk cost effect means that people are less likely to move the more they have invested in a particular area. And the area we were looking at was a particular area that was investigated by the Dolores Archaeological Project in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And this area was inhabited very densely by Pueblo One populations from about AD 700 to 900. And towards the end of that period, climates turned quite unfavorable for agriculture. And these people were heavily reliant on maize agriculture. And so they began to leave this area. But what we found is that in those places, where there was the most, the greatest investment in structures and in fields and infrastructure in general, people stayed the longest. They were the most reluctant to leave. And this points out that people leave places for essentially two different reasons. First of all, they do make some rational calculation. Are we able to make a living here? But secondly, they're highly conformist in their decisions. When people finally decide to leave, many more people leave than probably would have had to based on the rational calculation. But at the beginning of a migration process, there is uh, much less migration than you would affect, than you would expect. So there's thresholds here for migration, and they're very nonlinear. So that will lead perhaps to very interesting dynamics as we move into the future and uh, see what happens with some of these areas on our map that are red. Will people leave as they begin to turn red? Probably not. 
they will probably stay as long as they can, which might mean a massive and more uncontrolled and more unplanned migration uh, if we don't begin to do something about the conditions that are provoking the migration in the first place. You could also look at the same phenomena from a very different angle. So basically the idea that we have a sunk cost phenomena means that we don't want to change doing things. And this is also true for ways of living, for things you believe, for your investment in your belief, your, your way of living. And uh, actually, we know we should change the way we live to control climate change and, and biodiversity loss. But it's very hard to do that. And so that's another phase of the same problem. It seems very difficult to change. It's very interesting now to see in COVID crisis time that actually some things that we thought were completely unthinkable suddenly happen. So yes, we can. We can do all kinds of, of changes. But we are very reluctant to, to change our way of living, to, to abandon some things, even if we know rationally that that would be best. I think the two of you hit the sort of the two sides of this that I wanted to touch. This particular paper mentions, says the model predicts that sunk cost effects can lead to growth of settlements to a point where they are about to overexploit their resources. And at this point, resilience, the basin of attraction becomes very small and adverse stochastic effects will tend to induce collapse. You know, for this, the last several weeks in the transmission series that I've been hosting with David Krakauer, this has been coming up time and time again. I'm glad to see in a way that the pandemic has illuminated for people the ways that we have tuned our society to brittle efficiency. And yet, like you said, the more we benefit from economies of scale and you know, just-in-time supply chains and so on, these features of, of our global economy, as, as it has been, the more likely it looks like both we are making ourselves vulnerable to what for many people would be a surprise shock like the pandemic, even though there's lots of I told you so going on right now. But that also, like you mentioned just now, it makes us somewhat more likely as a sort of crisis of collective decision making to continue with business as usual, because, you know, it's harder without the crisis climb down off of the local optimum on your evolutionary fitness landscape. You know, if you've and that's I think that's that's sort of the beauty of this paper is how it explains why in mass, it's so difficult for us to do what we understand to be the right thing, but to make that decision as individuals. And so that that brings me to <laughs> speaking of uh, collective action problems. Uh, Martin, you were co-author of a piece in Science Magazine back in 2016 on social norms as solutions. And I feel like this is this is sort of the array of hope here. I mean, there's 26 authors, I think, on this article, which sort of presents its own collective action problem. Could you talk a little bit about this policies and large-scale behavioral tipping points? Well, the, you mentioned the, the number of authors. This is, this is a dynamics organized by the Bayer Institute of Ecological Economics, and it brings together a bunch of ecologists and economists and various social scientists to spend a long weekend in an isolated island in the Baltic. 
much as people get together in the isolated Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, but then we're in the Baltic. There is nothing there. We, we have to cook our own stuff. And so it's a long boat trip. And then we just talk and talk about something that we find interesting. And each year a paper comes out of that. And this time we were, we were interested in this, this question. And the paper originally was called The Non-Smoking Planet. So it, we were interested in the question, why do sometimes social norms change? Why do we suddenly have... Uh, no smoking in public places across Europe. It's started in some place and then it's everywhere. Why do that kind of transitions happen? And why do they not happen very often? And what is needed for them to happen? So we looked through all kinds of cases and, and looked just from examples rather than theory. When did we see a tradition, a tradition to no road littering or the transition in ancient China that ended the foot binding of little children why did it not happen for a long time and why did it suddenly happen? And, and kind of the conclusion of that paper, looking across all those cases, is that people stay with a particular way of doing things, but, but the resilience of that is, is becoming less and less. The resilience of uh, the idea that we can all smoke in, in public places is reduced because we start understanding how, uh, how unhealthy it is and there's more and more stories. And, and then you get... You get desperate because uh, when you want to make a policy, you realize that nothing is changing. It looks like nothing is changing, but really something is changing in the background. It's the resilience of the old way of doing things. And, and, when, and when time is ready, then you can have a, a rapid cascading change. Uh, you need in the beginning maybe to police a bit that people don't start smoking in a public place. But very soon, you don't have to do that. Because now if I put on a cigarette uh, in, in a school or in a university, everybody looks angry at me. So I immediately put it out. So it has become a social norm. Of course, when we think of sustainability of the planet, there is, there is many things that many people realize we need to change them. We should change that. We should, and not much is happening Things are happening in small groups. Kids become vegan and you get more and more becoming vegan, but it's not spreading across the whole globe. And it looks like nothing is happening, but things are happening. The, the, at some point, the resilience of the, of the status quo is, is diminished. And the good news is that then big things can happen pretty rapidly. One of the points in this paper is about the visibility of a new behavior yeah, and how much more difficult it is to change something if people cannot observe their neighbors making the change. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's, there's a mention here about customers of a major electric utility were much more likely to participate in a program preventing blackouts when their neighbors could tell who signed up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So there is a lot of, there is a lot of things we know from social psychology. And I, I remember talking to Lynn Ostrom uh, before she passed away about this and and it's a point she would um, she would emph emphasize that it this this visibility of your behavior is very important so this makes it easier to change some things than other things smoking in public places is very visible but you can you can do something about visibility you can make uh, the behavior of uh, people in some sense uh, sometimes you can make it more more visible like in that example this seems like a particularly sticky issue when we're talking about long-term climate modeling, because people tend to get lost in the weeds, as I know you both know, about 
the details of the model. And in earlier episodes, when I, you know, I had uh, Mirta Galasic on, she was talking about the calculation that each of us are kind of unconsciously running at all times about social truth versus factual truth. And like, you know, you said the, the importance of conformity and how when there are not imminent negative consequences to holding a counterfactual belief or behaving as if you do, then people will choose the politically motivated bias over an adherence to empirical reality. So I'm, I'm curious how the two of you see opportunities for this kind of behavioral tipping point this far out when we're talking about 2070 and all of this for so many people is very vivid and real. You know, if you're living in one of these zones where they have these extreme heat waves or hurricanes have gone up by many factors over the last couple decades, but for a lot of people, it's not as obvious. I'm curious how you imagine we might be able to bring this down to earth for people without running them over the cliff. You, you raise a really interesting point, and in archaeology we phrased this as uh, the low frequency versus high frequency change problem. The increasing mean annual temperature of the Earth's surface is a very low frequency problem. It's virtually impossible for an individual to sense those very small increases in temperature, uh, even over the course of a relatively long lifespan. But what is salient to people are the uh, severe events, the extreme events that get superimposed on tops of these things. So you've got a low frequency process moving along. In this case, it's mostly ramping up. Then you've got high frequency processes superimposed on that. And they're tracking the low frequency process to some extent. But of course, the highs get higher uh, as you track that low frequency process. So the extreme events are going to get more extreme. And those are really what people will be keying in on. The heat waves, which have been getting progressively worse in Europe over the last uh, decade or so, the severe storms, uh, droughts, all those things do capture people's attention. They are highly visible. And it's becoming more plausible now than it was just a few years ago to assess the extent to which uh, climate change is responsible for those. That This is the attribution problem, but uh, one can take climate models with and without forcing by warming from greenhouse gases and assess how likely it is, how likely it would have been to have had such a storm or some other extreme event without global warming and thereby provide an estimate of the extent to which those extreme events can be attributed to climate change. So this is very powerful because these are highly visible. People feel them. They're aware of them, unlike the increases in mean annual temperature. This is a big, uh, big topic that, that we can we can can talk long about. Like what is needed to to change the behavior of people. But you're entering a big area there, and it's not just individual decisions. Of course, it's a, policy makes a lot of difference. So the, what happens on the world is also to a large extent determined by big firms. There is a, a limited number of firms that basically run the world. You could say. We have democracies, but democracies work in ways that, uh, you know, it, it's not simply just reflecting individual 
preferences. And then there is the other big issue, which is the way that our perception of the world has changed as a result, for instance, of social media use. There's many areas we could explore there, but uh, it's, it's a wide open field. I don't want to leave you on the side, Martin, but there's an opportunity here to talk about Tim, your new paper, this piece on the Sashat data bank. What I'd like to do is first address in the paper on the future of the climate niche, I'd like to address the alternative to migration, which is adaptation, and then return to collective decision-making and the scale of human society and our ability to integrate at that scale in the new piece on Sashat. As you make clear in this paper, it's not just migration. You leave a wide open area to speculate about possible adaptations that we're able to make in the next 50 years. I have to suffer the Twitter responses to this kind of stuff as part of my job. And like, you know, somebody pointed out on Twitter that, you know, people living in Phoenix and Miami are already living in in these kind of conditions and they seem to be doing okay. But of course, they're also dependent on agricultural supply from other areas. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very complex image. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on the possibility of adapting to this and what particular challenges we would, you think we would face in, in doing so. Well, this is something that, of course, the IPCC worries a lot about. One of the great interests of the IPCC is what kind of adaptation can be done to these sorts of changes. How can we face these? How can we do better? And obviously, uh, one can breed crops to attempt to uh, make them productive under higher temperature conditions or different precipitation conditions. One can breed animals in the same way. But it's also believed, and I'm sure this is correct, that there are limits to adaptability. There are limits to plasticity for these various uh, plants and animals. Uh, We don't necessarily know, at least I don't know, where those limits lie exactly, but uh, it's highly plausible in my view that not all of this problem can be met just by adaptation. IPCC uses another term, which is mitigation in a rather special way. And what IPCC means by mitigation is the prevention of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere in the first place, or perhaps the removal of them from the atmosphere after they've gotten there. And so one hopes that through adaptation and mitigation that a great deal of the demand that would otherwise be met by migration can be met. But one doesn't know exactly how much and what that will look like because we're looking into the future and we're trying to uh, assume that uh, technology will always be able to help us out of our difficulties. But one of the things that I think that I know as an archaeologist is that Many past societies have gotten into trouble that their technology was unable to get them out of. And we don't really know whether or not our technology will be able to help us out of the hole we're digging ourselves into. We can certainly hope that that's the case, but I wouldn't want to pin our futures just on that hope personally. So you're mentioning people saying, well, people live in in Phoenix and in, in Las Vegas and they do pretty well. Actually, Las Vegas doesn't have uh, such a high mean annual temperature and neither does uh, Phoenix. We're talking about hotter hotter places. You can live anywhere, of course, uh, if you have the means, if you have 
a well-isolated house, a powerful airco, when you fly in your food, there is no problem to live wherever, even at great heat. But if you have to earn a living working on the land, working outside, doing labor, then there is just not uh, that possibility. So people tend to have um, have a strange perspective on uh, on heat. They think that Las Vegas is a, is a hot place. Well, it can be much hotter than that. And they seem to think that, uh, yeah, what's the problem? I have airco, I have food. But that that is not the situation that the vast majority of the people are in that would be exposed to those very hot temperatures. That's a good point. You mentioned in this paper something like 50% of today's global population are smallholder farmers or depend on smallholder farming, and this is outdoor work. So like, I guess at least one of those innovations would have to be like a dune still suit or something that you can... <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything is possible, but, but you know, if you have the resources, everything is possible. And those people just don't have the resources. Well, and the other trap is in thinking that we can always use technology to get ourselves out of these difficulties. And of course, uh, air conditioning, uh, at least the kinds we have available right now, flying in food or other means of transporting food, all of these things take a lot of energy. And under present technology, release a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, ultimately making the problem even worse. So when we use energy intensive ways to try to get ourselves out of these problems through some kind of adaptation, in the long run, we're digging ourselves into a deeper hole. Yeah, it's funny. The air conditioner is sort of a perfect example of this tragedy of the commons failure to coordinate. So on that note, there's, I didn't actually intend to discuss this paper today, but it's a fascinating paper that, uh, that Tim, you just co-authored with Jaewon uh, Shin, is that right? Okay, Jaewon Shin, Michael Price at SFI, David Wolpert at SFI, uh, Hajime Shimao, Brendan Tracy. Also, there's a lot of Santa Fe on this one, and and but it's a paper about the Sashat data bank that Peter Turchin and his people have put together, and a cut into it, a, a bit of exploration about the history of social evolution. And I'd like to hear you kind of lay out what you found in this study, and then let's turn it around and and look at what light it might shed on this paper about the human climate niche moving forward. Well, in the first place, our paper was stimulated by a very interesting paper that Peter Turchin and his group published uh, about two years ago in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And in that, they mined the, uh, the Seshat data bank as it existed a couple years ago to try to look at what are the processes that move societies from very small scale, as in, say, early Neolithic societies thousands of years ago, to the sorts of apparently more complex societies that we see like in uh, the early states of, of France or England or uh, the early states of Mesopotamia. Can we see whether there are shared processes involved? And so they, I, they had something like 50 different variables that they thought might be involved in this process that they were monitoring in their data bank. They grouped those into nine characteristics that they called complexity, 
characteristics, and they did a principal components analysis, and they showed that the first principal component, that is the shared variance uh, across all these societies as they moved from small to large, was extremely high. 77% of, uh, of the variance was shared among all these different societies, and these, these differences included things like the capital population grew, the territories of the polities grew, the total population of the polities grew, the writing systems became more complex, the systems in which economic transactions were monitored became more complex, and on and on across nine different characteristics, more levels in the government and more levels in the religion and things like that. So that was a fairly stunning result. And David and I and other members of his group decided we'd like to look at this more closely, and we did. And what we found is that there's another pattern in there, in addition to that which Peter Turchin and his group saw. Uh, no way invalidates what they did, but there's the second principal component, in fact, uh, shows that this apparently monolithic process, social political evolution, can be resolved into something like three different phases. And in a first phase, we see that polities or societies are concentrating on increasing in scale, mostly in population, but also in territory size. Once they get up to a particular scale, then they bump up against a boundary in which they cannot easily grow more in scale until they have improved their ways of processing information and processing economic transactions. And we, we call that a, a sort of information threshold. So they, once they get up to the scale threshold, then they have to solve an information problem. And in the second phase of social evolution, there are multiple different pathways that societies explore for increasing their efficiency and their power and the information content of the ways in which they monitor transactions and uh, govern and store information. Once those problems have been solved, they come into a third phase of social evolution, which is again predominantly a growth in scale. And we see this primarily only in the old world and the formation of big empires in the old world. So does this have any ramifications? Can we build any intuitions from any of this as to what might happen in the future? Well, that wasn't the point of that paper, but one thing does come to mind right away, and that is that we have radically improved our capacities for information processing in the last two or three decades. We now have marvelous cyber infrastructure that allows us to store, monitor, and mine vast amounts of information. Does this mean that we are on the threshold of another sort of revolution in terms of growth in scale? In fact, I think we're already there, we're already embarking on that. And I'd like to point to something Martin said just a moment ago, that that growth in scale seems at this point to have been largely in the domain of private companies, commercial firms, places like Google, well, you know the fan companies as well as I do. Those have really profited from, literally, from this growth in scale and uh, they've become much more powerful actors on the world scene than any previous corporation has ever been. And where that will take us is an interesting question. You know, I wonder if there's a different way to read this, 
and you're the one to ask. Living online as I must for this job, it seems like so much of the conversation that I encounter is about polarization, fragmentation, the disintegration of the social graph. I talked about this with with David in one of the transmission episodes regarding research by Miguel Fuentes. What we see at the cusp of a crisis, you know, that we see people balkanize and seek out local solutions. And I'm I'm curious your study of archaeological history, there was always another society over there. And now the story of global civilization is about changes sort of happening within this planet-spanning structure or process. And and so I, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, when we talk about there being collective action problems, we pride ourselves on having gone through this information explosion. But the success of companies like Google hinged on their ability to help us sift and navigate and organize and make sense of all of that information. And I wonder if one of the things sort of required in order to adapt, mitigate, and migrate in a non-tragic way in response to changes in, in global climate might be better ways to coordinate ourselves as a planetary entity. And, you know, we don't have a lot to go on as far as precedence in that regard. What you're saying is that the uh, cyber infrastructure that has been built and at least is to some extent controlled or at the very least made available by these uh, huge multinational corporations may allow us uh, some opportunities working largely from the bottom up to coordinate our actions a little bit better. That's a very hopeful view of what could happen. One could also imagine that these companies or other powerful actors will find ways to influence the information that is available in these networks in such a way that people do not have full access to the information that they really ought to have despite the enormous reach of these media. If we're going to dip back into the discussion of sunk costs to ask the economic equation that each of us is individually and all of us collectively are making as we pivot through the space of possible futures here. Other than a a massive uptick in extreme weather events, what sort of eucatastrophes, to borrow a term from J.R.R. Tolkien, do you imagine might lead to a more intelligent and preemptive response? What changes do you think might be possible here? Martin, I know that this paper on policy and large-scale behavioral tipping points um, touches on on some of this that you know the, the possibility of making a tipping point where none previously existed. Where do you think it's worth sort of steering the inquiry into, not just through Google esque filter bubble manipulation of people's information as as you just suggested, Tim, but like what might make this an easier calculation for people? You know, one thought maybe like Jessica Transick's work on the declining cost of batteries and electric vehicles. Like what else do the two of you see as as bumping us off the business as usual trajectory into climate disaster? Well, that's a good question. So if you want to change the world, it's likely that change has to happen on many levels simultaneously. So uh, we were actually working now on a paper of that same group uh, that is brought together 
each year in the Baltic by the Bayer Institute of Ecological Economics on this question. And, and the consensus in the end where, where, where we get to is there is no silver bullet thing. But what we will uh, need is, first of all, this underlying increasing awareness that is destabilizing the status quo. People need to become more and more aware that we need to do things differently. But then also it has to happen. So there can be those social norm tipping points, but it also has to translate to other levels. So uh, one level that uh, now there is a lot of interest in is the level of the multinational organizations, whether they are maybe at some point interested in making a move and what is needed for them to do that. What kind of things from national policies are needed to do that? What kind of pressure from consumers is needed to do that? Then there is the view that bouncing back and forth little Twitter messages and Facebook connections doesn't get us to the depth of discussion that we need. So maybe we need to have more space for this elaboration. Maybe we need to get together for for deeper discussion. And there is thoughts about how that that kind of things can be can be organized. In general, you can think of different levels of levers on systems. The, the easiest ones are, well, let's just increase the minimum wage or just changing small parameters. The most profound one is changing the intent of the system. Where, where does it want to go? And, and real, uh, real deep changes. For instance, if you look now in Chile, there is a lot of social change going on. It was before the COVID crisis. I don't know if you noticed, but there were street protests, very big, millions in the streets. It was, uh, the whole country was flat. And it was a bit like the yellow vests in Paris, that people were just unhappy with the way things were going. This was mainly about inequality. It was triggered by the fact that people couldn't pay their electricity bills, their water bills. Everything is privatized. Electricity, water is privatized. And they saw the people in charge of those companies leading very rich lives. And they saw their parents, retired parents, being unable to pay the bills. So people became very angry. But then it changed in a very interesting direction. People started asking, okay, what kind of country do we want to live in? There were meetings in all the town halls, uh, spontaneous meetings that everyone could uh, set up, asking what kind of country do we want to live in? The end of the story is that the constitution is going to be rewritten. And that's an anchor for a lot of change. It's not easy for a country to get the constitution rewritten. But you have to think about all those levels. The constitution was there because of the, because of the military dictature. They had changed the constitution in a way that would ensure continued power of the people that took the power. So, so it's not like you can change something here and we will resolve everything. Uh, we have to change things. We have to think about change on different levels. And we have to find a synergy between those if we want to speed up change and the change that is needed. There is not an easy action, not an easy silver bullet thing, but it all starts with a realization that we all are much better off 
if we force a change. We cha- we, we, and then we pressure multinationals, we pressure governments, we change our constitutions, we change our behavior. That kind of broad sweeping change is needed. And I think things like our paper may help realize that something big is coming and we need to change big if we want to avoid that. And it happens to come in a time of the COVID crisis where people suddenly are changing all kinds of things at very high economic costs across the whole world. And I think we are seeing that, yes, that is possible. It's not that we are inevitably locked in the way we always did things. It's very clear now that that is not the case. We can change. We can change rapidly and profoundly, even if that has a short-term economic cost. That's a good place to stop, in my opinion. It was very nice to say. (laughs) (laughs) So be it. Yeah, I really want to thank the both of you for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.